right, we're in Psalms, picking up sort of where we left off. We're not going to do every individual psalm. Um, going to hit some of the highlights, so to speak. Um, that's a almost shameful thing to say with regard to the psalms. Um, we're going to do Psalm 42 and 43. Um, I believe that these are actually intended to be one psalm, uh, and I'll tell you oh so briefly why in a few moments. But let us hear the word of our God. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is within me, with me a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my enemies taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against the ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge, Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father, the psalmist 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings us into uncomfortable territory with an uncomfortable subject. It is, in fact, a dangerous one, as many pastors have done harm to the sheep in discussing this. We ask that you would lead us into gracious truth this morning. May the Holy Spirit who inspired also illuminate the Scriptures, and may He remind us that a bruised reed you will not break, and a smoldering wick you will not snuff out. These words were meant to give us hope, not to condemn us. And so in the course of this, show us our great and merciful High Priest Jesus more clearly. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Depression is a very common though commonly misunderstood, experience and problem, particularly for God's people. I often hear uh, claims made that the Christian should not be depressed. That is a horrible thing and an unbiblical thing to say. Because we have here a believer in God who is depressed We see right here in this passage someone who is struggling with what we would call depression. More than that, we see as well through the the uh, course of church history many great and godly men who have suffered, and women, who have suffered with depression. Martin Luther, for instance. But let me give you the story of someone else for just a moment. Charles Spurgeon was only 22. Oh, she thought I was going there, didn't you? He was only 22 in 1856. His ministry had been so successful at that point already, which boggles the imagination, that they had had to rent another facility while they redid the place where he preached. They had to renovate and expand. And so they met at the Surrey Gardens. And it was in October of that year that Spurgeon began to preach. And then someone, thinking it might be funny, decided to shout out out amongst the crowds, Fire! And you can imagine what happened. As people panicked and rushed for the exits, tragedy happened. Seven people were trampled. 28 were seriously injured. Spurgeon was devastated. He almost never went back into the pulpit. Depression had captured his soul. He's not sure how after two weeks he climbed back into the pulpit, but the people of God are thankful that he did. But it would not be a short thing for Spurgeon. This was something that would plague him the rest of his life. He would have these periods of deep depression. And sometimes he would need to be carried in and out of the pulpit to discharge the ministry that he holds so important. 
In one of his sermons, he noted that man is a double being. He is composed of body and soul. And each of the portions of man may receive injury and hurt. And so what Spurgeon is getting at there is that there is not one cause of depression, but there are actually many causes of depression. Because of the fall in Adam, some people have a genetic predisposition towards depression. Because of the fall of Adam, sin happens, people feel guilty, and sometimes they fall into depression. Sometimes, because of the fall of Adam, people have serious diseases or injuries. In the course of that, that uh, pain to the body that seems to go unabated, they can also fall into depression. And so there are physical causes of depression as well as spiritual causes of depression and circumstantial causes of depression. And so let's keep that all in mind as we uncover this text a little more clearly this morning. Our big idea is that God's gospel work and promises sustain us in depression. Let's start with the truth that we wish weren't true, and that is that the children of God can suffer from depression. As we begin this psalm, we recognize a few things. Let's go back for a moment. Look at the text, the very beginning of 42. Many of the psalms up to this point have said a psalm of David. This time it says to the choir master, a masquil of the sons of Korah. And so David didn't write this psalm. That's why we read from Numbers this morning. Who in the world are the sons of Korah? Korah was not a good man. (laughs) Korah himself led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and a rebellion that God took so seriously that the earth opened up and swallowed all of those who joined in the rebellion. But we see mercifully from that passage in Numbers that the sons of Korah were not killed. They didn't join their father in the rebellion. And so, Later on, those sons of Korah, those, these Levites, would be appointed by David to uh, lead the people of God in worship. And so this is a psalm that seems to be written by this group of people called the sons of Korah who wrote. You will see, 43 has no similar heading. There isn't one. If you look forward, you see one in 44, okay? So that's one reason why we think that this is actually intended to be one big psalm, not two psalms. Additionally, we see the repetition of the chorus as well as the continuation of the theme that goes from Psalm 42 into Psalm 43. And in some of the more ancient manuscripts, these are actually together as one psalm. So there's a reason why I'm joining these things together. So keep that in mind. But there is a lack of clarity with regard to the circumstances. Was this written about David? We're not sure. Was this written about another king? We're not sure. Is this an experience that some of the sons of Korah had themselves perhaps uh, going into exile? 
We're not sure. But what we see as we look at the psalm uh, with how it develops, we see, I think, what, what we call these, these cycles that go through. Each verse brings up a problem as well as an appropriate petition in light of that problem. And what I want us to keep in mind here is, you know, big picture item. The children of God have problems. Okay? Grace does not mean that your life is scrubbed of problems and afflictions. Grace means that you have hope in the midst of your problems and afflictions. Okay? So the sons of Korah are writing this to the people of God because sometimes the people of God feel these very same things. They have these very same questions. They need to make these very same petitions. And they need to be reminded of the very same hope. And so the beginning of this, let's, let's look at this in terms of how they describe depression. And in the first verse of this psalm, we see dryness. Okay? There's this picture here of a deer panting for the streams. It's thirsty. We're not sure if it's a drought or if it's been pursued by a hunter or some sort of uh, predatory animal like a mountain lion. But either way, this deer is dying from thirst. And he's meant to to help us understand that is part of how we feel that there is an incredible thirst that threatens to destroy us. Because he's not experiencing relief. He's not able to go to the refrigerator, say, I'm 99.9% parched, have his glass, stick it there, and, and, you know, fill up his glass with nice, refreshing water, and drink it down. There's nothing to slake his thirst, even as Peter drinks right now. He couldn't do that. Drought is deadly, spiritual drought can be just as deadly to the soul. He cries out, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. God seems so far away. He is spiritually dry. This would be a spiritual reason for depression. There's another one that he gives in the second verse. Drowning. Dryness to drowning. No water to way too much water. So many people have expressed it in this particular way. I think of William Cooper, uh, who wrote a number of hymns, who was a friend of John Newton, and one of the poems that he wrote is called The Castaway. And he speaks of a man who who his boat has been shipwrecked, and he's upon the waters, and eventually he drowns. And that was a picture of Cooper's own experience with depression. And so here, the psalmist pictures this as the headwaters of the Jordan. Up in the mountains, you see, the waterfalls. I love waterfalls. I love to look at waterfalls. I don't want to be in a waterfall. 
And that sort of is almost the, the, the picture that's here because the breakers are falling down upon them. It's wave upon wave that falls upon the psalmist. Okay? Your breakers and your waves have gone over me. They keep pushing him down. This is up, as it talks about in Hermon, Mount Hermon. We're not sure where this other mountain is, but that location at the, the headwaters of the Jordan, some of the commentators indicate that perhaps, and of course we don't really know exactly why, but if these were people being taken in exile towards Babylon or Syria, this would be on the way out of God's land, of the land. And Mount Hermon would be the last place you could stand and look and see Jerusalem in the distance. And so it may have to do with that why he picks this particular place because he also talks about how God is so far away. But it's a drowning. That's how I've often felt when I've counseled people who are depressed. It's like I'm counseling drowning people who are trying to pull me under. I struggle sometimes in counseling depressed people because I don't want to be pulled under. Third picture of depression is that of being defenseless. He feels that he cannot defend himself against the ungodly people from the deceitful. In other words, uh, there are people who are accusing him, whether it's other Israelites or if this is a picture of exile, it is the captors making fun of them. Where is your God? Where is he now? Because you are under my thumb. And the reason you're under my thumb, perhaps, they might say, is because of your betrayal of your God, your unfaithfulness toward him. And so accusations would fly. And he feels the weight of these accusations. He feels defenseless, unable to, def to protect himself from these accusations. Spurgeon felt this. Because after the tragedy, I mean, you know, seven people don't die at a worship service without the press noticing it. They blamed him. He was merely preaching. But they took this opportunity to attack Spurgeon. Sometimes it's directly to your face. This week we sat in an arbitration hearing and had two lawyers make accusations against us. And when they described my wife to me, I don't know that woman. That's not the woman I've been married to for 14 years. I don't know who they're talking about. They were being deceitful. But the accusations still come like fiery darts of the devil pointed towards our souls. We recognize that it's not just the person who speaks, but it is Satan who also speaks through the mouths of these people. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says to them, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And what do lions eat? 
the slowest, sickest member of the herd. Satan preys on the weak. And when you're going through some sort of spiritual distress or physical distress, what's going to happen is Satan sees you're weak and comes in for the kill like a roaring lion. And so if you're experiencing affliction, don't be surprised to hear accusations coming your way. Don't be surprised if you feel defenseless in the face of them. This is partly why uh, in Ephesians 6, it does talk about putting on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And that is the precisely the passage that I prayed as we walked into the arbitration hearing, knowing what was going to happen. The armor of God is actually Christ Himself as He is presented to us in the Gospel. We are intended to be clothed with Jesus in order to stand firm against the wiles of the devil. But we see that the psalmist here, he says, I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. Twice he says this, and despair rushes in and captures his soul. So being a Christian does not mean perfect mental health. Many godly people struggle with this. Let's talk secondarily. If the children of God can suffer depression, the children of God pour out their hearts in petition. They don't just feel the depression, but they respond to the depression. The psalmist sort of lays out how he responded to these overwhelming feelings of depression, the dryness, the drowning, the defenselessness. We see sort of a progression unfolding in this of going from questions to requests as he pours out his soul to God. He's sort of cycling through Why is it, I think, that there are three verses and choruses in this psalm? Because we cycle through. In the experience of depression, it's not just like, oh, we go and do this once and it's done. But we go through this repeatedly. Okay, Depression does not go away when you wave a magic wand. And it didn't go away for him. As if he waved a magic wand. And so the first part of this, he cries out, When? When shall I come and appear before God? He wants back to God. He wants back to His people. Whether or not He's physically, geographically isolated or not, we're not sure. It could simply be the exile of the heart. But He wants back to God. People have been removed from God's presence. We see this beginning in Eden. When Adam and Eve first sinned, what happened? They were removed from Eden. They were removed from the very first temple, the very first place of worship on earth. They were removed because of their sin. What we see as we go through the history of Israel, as God then dwells, so to speak, He manifests His presence at the tabernacle. And what happens sometimes because of their sin? The tabernacle left them. Remember the days of Samuel and Eli. Then God manifests Himself in terms of the temple. That was the place they were supposed to go and they were supposed to worship as God's people. These were manifestations of God's presence to them. 
But like Adam and Eve, the psalmist feels banished from God's presence, and sometimes so do we. We feel so far from Him. But what I'm saying is, is the depression lies. You feel far from God. But ultimately, you are not far from God. He continues. Okay? He continues and talks about his memory. He brings up these things he remembers. He remembers leading the people into the procession at the festivals. He remembers leading the people in worship. And, and the reality is, is that sometimes our memories can be used as a blessing and sometimes used as a curse. And here they are used as a curse. This memory puts him deeper in depression. I'm reminded of our transitional period, and it was difficult to sit and think, I'm supposed to be leading God's people right now. And the memory of years of ministry and being on the sideline was very painful. Spurgeon experienced that years later. He had gone to preach at a major conference. And as he stood getting ready to preach, he had a flashback. We call it PTSD. And he imagined for a moment that he was back at Surrey Garden. And he almost couldn't preach. So great was his distress. His memory had betrayed him in a sense. The psalmist continues, Why have you forgotten me? He's not simply feeling lost. He's not simply feeling disconnected. He's feeling abandoned. And he's not sure why. Does God abandon His children? Of course not. We have the promise of Hebrews, for instance. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We have this great promise, but again, depression blinds us to the promise that we have. He then begins to cry out in petitions. Vindicate me, he says. He longs for God to act as judge in his particular case to uphold and defend his cause because he believes unrighteousness, injustice is happening. Again, that phrase comes up, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And so he's saying, defend me from the enemy. Defend me from the accusations. Prove that I'm right. And while he's seeking this refuge in God, he still experiences this rejection as we see in 43.2. What he longs for, what he needs is an advocate. He is not asking for the equalizer to show up. For those of you who aren't familiar, I tend to think of the movie, The Equalizer, because I think Denzel Washington is a little more scary to me than a kind of an overweight British guy in the TV show. <laughs> because I want someone who is going to take care of business. And Denzel, thanks to his movies, 
appears to be that guy. But I don't need a vigilante. I need an advocate. That's what I really need. Not my enemies destroyed, but my enemies silenced and proved wrong. He continues and he says, send out your light and your truth. In other words, he needs light and truth, God's light, God's truth, to bring him back to the place of worship. We see that depression often isolates us often stops our mouths. We don't need to pretend in the midst of depression, but we need to do what the psalmist does as he pours out his soul. He talks about the tears being his food. Have you ever lived on tears? He seems to. talks about, there's a difficult phrase to understand uh, or translate and therefore interpret with the bones. But the basic point is the same no matter how you translate it. His pain is so bad, it's like his bones have been broken. And so he's pouring out his soul. He's not keeping it all inside, but he lays it out before God. He's taking what's in there, all of the pain, all of the distress, and he's letting it out. I unfortunately seem to suffer since I've moved to Arizona with boils. And what happens with a boil? It just gets bigger and more painful. You've got to let the pus out. You've got to lance that bugger. Pouring out the soul is like lancing the boil. You're getting the poison out so that it can begin to heal So pouring out our souls to God is really part of what we need to do when we experience depression. Name what's going on to you. Prayer, I'm not saying that prayer is a silver bullet. I'm not saying pray and boom, your depression is gone. What I am saying is, this is one of the means that God uses to sustain us through the duration of our depression, however long that may take. And so, uh, prayer is not an antidote. Prayer is more how God keeps you alive in the midst of it. Okay. So, please don't misunderstand what I say about that. I don't want you to have false hopes. And so the means of grace are a means of fighting our depression instead of just rolling over and playing dead to our depression. Thirdly, lastly, the children of God hope in our gracious God. So this is where the chorus comes in. The chorus is essentially him talking to himself. There's the depression talking to him, so to speak, and now here's him talking back to the depression. Why are you... So downcast, why are you in such turmoil? You need to talk to yourself too, not just listen to yourself. Roy Clements notes that we are never helpless victims of our emotions. Don't let your feelings dictate to you. You do the dictating. And so he says to himself, Self, 
hope in God. His hope had possibly been misdirected. He may have been hoping in himself. He may have been hoping in his circumstances. But now he's saying, I need to redirect my hope and place it upon God. And we, with the psalmist, have a great God on which to place our hopes. We have the great God of the gospel of salvation upon whom we can place our hopes, upon whom we must place our hopes. How does he speak of God throughout this text? We see, first off, that God is my rock, which indicates this rock of safety, a place of refuge from the storm, perhaps. God is stable and unmoved when we are very unstable and easily moved. We are made of dust and clay. And so we are prone to crumble and be swept away by affliction. We are like the man whose house is built on himself, the man who hears what Jesus says and doesn't do it when the rains come. Everything gets washed away. When we rely upon ourselves, everything gets washed away when the rain of affliction comes. Jesus is meant to be our rock. The rock of safety that will not be washed away no matter how bad the storm actually is. And it can be pretty bad. And so as Zach Eswin notes in his book on Spurgeon, your hope is not your health, but His ability to be the strength you need. It's an important thing for us to remember. Your hope is not your health, but His ability to be the strength you need, to be the rock. He's also my exceeding joy. Long before John Piper phrased, came up with the phrase, Christian hedonism, my exceeding joy, focuses on God as our greatest delight, a delight that ultimately can't be lost, even though there may be times when we're not delighting in Him like when we're in depression. And these fleeting days without joy will eventually give way to an all-surpassing, never-ending joy. Because God is our exceeding joy. He is my salvation. Which, of course, reminds us of the great work of God for our salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. And as we we ponder that for a moment, let us uh, think of this Statement by Spurgeon, broken-hearted one, Jesus Christ knows all your troubles, for similar troubles were His portion. Again, broken-hearted one, Jesus Christ knows all of your troubles, for similar troubles were His portion. He walked through these things so He is able to help us as our great High Priest. Okay? Therefore, we remember 42.1 talks about this, that my, my soul pants for You. My soul thirsts for You. Jesus upon the cross cried out, I thirst. He knows what it's like to be thirsty 
not just physically, but also spiritually, because he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows of this experience, and Jesus is the very same one who was able to give us the streams of living water and salvation as he talks about in John 4 and 7. Our roads lead back to John sometimes, don't they? Okay. Not only that, but we see the, this idea of vindication. Jesus is our advocate before the Father. He is our counselor, so to speak, before the Father who defends us from all accusation. We see that in Romans chapter 8, but we also see it in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if, maybe it should say when, when anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous or righteous one. And so we have one who does stand in our defense with the Father, who vindicates us before the Father so that He doesn't believe the lies of the evil one. Just as we hope the arbitrator doesn't believe the lies of the other attorneys, The Father knows the truth. And the truth is, this is one for whom I died, is what the uh, the Son says to His Father. Not only that, but we see that, you know, of course the psalmist cries out, send your light, send your truth. Jesus is revealed in John's Gospel as, in fact, the light of the world, the one who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life intended to bring us back to God, to bring us back into the presence of God to experience His love. And we see even more that Jesus is the new temple where we meet with the Father, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, but we also see in 1 Peter chapter 2, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are living stones in the new temple. There doesn't need to be another one in Jerusalem because Jesus is the final temple. And we are part of it. And so therefore we have hope that we meet with God because we're part of this temple. And so what we see here is that hoping in God involves, I think, reminding ourselves of His greatness, reminding ourselves of His great work for us in the past, as well as the great works He's promised for the future. Hope is really that waiting on God to bring these things to pass. And so while your depression says, God has abandoned you, hope says, He will come again for me. I hate the movie Waterworld. It is probably one of the worst Kevin Costner movies ever. And I watched it on a bus going from Mexico City to Texco through the mountains. Those of you who've driven through the mountains of Mexico, you know what this is like. If you've done it in a bus, you know you get queasy. Not a great place to watch Waterworld, right? (laughs) 
But there's one thing that stands out to me, that there's this little girl who has been captured by the bad guy, and the bad guy mocks her. Just as the evil one mocks us. Where is your friend? And she says, He will come for me. She didn't believe she was abandoned, even though the liar kept saying she was abandoned. She knew the character of the other person, and he would come. And Jesus is far greater than Kevin Costner's character in that movie. He's far stronger and far wiser, and he loves far more deeply. He will come for his people. And if you're part of his people, he will come for you. And that's what hope banks on. It's waiting for Jesus to come. All right, we've got to wrap this thing up. Depression is a very common experience for God's people, for God's children. Though we'd rather not talk about it. If we go to Pilgrim's Progress, for instance, we see that Pilgrim goes through the slough of despond. He enters into Doubting Castle and he faces the giant despair who beats him from pillar to post. Three experiences in that one book on the Pilgrim of the Christian life have to do with depression. Faith does not remove us from depression. Faith is intended to be deepened by depression. It's meant to sustain us through depression. And so faith feeds hope, which waits on God to fulfill the promises that depression seeks to hide from our eyes. While Satan means for depression to destroy you, God intends it to drive you to Jesus. And whose strength alone we can stand because He is the place where we meet with God. He is the one who gives us living water for our thirst. He is the advocate who has taken away our sins. He is the light and the truth that lead us back to God. And so pour out your soul so that He can fill it with hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. In some strange way, we thank You for depression when it does drive us to Jesus. When it clarifies things about Him being our only hope, our only treasure, our only advocate before the Father, the only bread of heaven. When that takes place, we thank You because You have wounded us in order to heal us. Father, protect us from the wiles of the evil one that we would not fall prey. But rather, when He comes like that roaring lion, we would indeed be clothed in Jesus. His armor. Able to stand not because of our strength, but because of His strength. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.